Mrs. Tino, appreciate that. She played uh, He Touched Me. And uh, for those who have uh, been touched by the Lord, um, that's, a, that's a special song. And it's a special uh, truth that God would want to touch us. Well, uh, we're going to be back in the book of Mark. Uh, Mark chapter number 8 is where we're going to be this, this morning. Mark in chapter number 8. And uh, we're going to be looking at verses 31 through 30. And if you're able to stand one more time together, uh, Mark chapter number 8. And we're just going to read three verses and uh, look at these three verses. I know we're trying to make our way through the Gospel of Mark, and it's going to be a very long time if all we do is look at three verses each week. But, uh, but this is such a special, important passage that we can't just skip over it. I want to take some time and spend a, a whole service on these three verses. And uh, we're going to be looking at verses 31 through verse 33. Um, the Bible says this in verse 31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly, and Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. And let's pray one more time together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the service thus far. But now I pray that you would give us what we need tonight or today, that you would speak to us and help us, Lord, uh, to put away the distractions of life and focus in on what you'd have for us today. Help us to be good hearers, but then more than that, help us to be good doers of what we hear. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So we mentioned last week that when Peter made the proclamation that Jesus is indeed the Christ, that that marked the turning point of the book of Mark and the passage uh, that we are going to study today is going to be evidence of that fact. Remember, we said last week that uh, for the first chunk of the book, the first half of the book, for the most part, uh, Jesus was focused on his serving And then the the next part of the book, Jesus was going to be focused on his sacrifice. And we see uh, the the corner turned uh, right here because in verse number 31, he begins to teach them uh, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be killed and after three days rise again. So he begins to focus more on not just uh, letting everybody know who he is. Now he's focused on what he is going to do on the cross of Calvary. Have you ever received uh, some news, an announcement that was shocking, and something you never expected to hear? Uh, I'm going to share with you some, uh, that, that happening in my life when I was an older teenager. I was probably about 17 years old, about the same age as my oldest son, Seth. And uh, at the time, I was working at uh, a very fine dining establishment, the Golden Arches. McDonald's, yes, I worked at McDonald's. And I remember one uh, one afternoon, I I think I got home from 
school and it was time to get ready for my shift and and uh, so I got I got dressed and and I was heading out the house and I walked past the den which was on the right hand side from the hallway from my room to the kitchen area to the uh, where I can exit the, the house well in the den to my right I saw the door was open and I looked inside and no one was usually in there at that time but on this day both my mom and dad were in there and it was kind of an odd thing and uh, it was not a, a normal from my dad was usually working and, and not home at that time but uh, but there I saw my mom and dad in the den with a light on and as I walked past I I saw my mom in tears and my dad was uh, sitting very close to her and and trying to comfort her I thought what in the world is going on well I I looked at my clock and my watch, and I said, I, I got to get out of here. I got to get to my shift. It's, I don't want to be late. But I, when it, as I drove there and as I worked all night serving people their Big Macs and their French fries, I couldn't help but think of what was going on in that den. And uh, after I got home, after my shift, I got home, and my dad was waiting for me, and he asked the question. He said, I... I bet you're wondering what we were talking about in the den. And I said, yeah, I haven't stopped thinking about it uh, all evening long. He said, well, um, we've been to some doctors, and uh, we just learned today that uh, your mom has cancer. I wasn't expecting to hear that that day. That was some heavy news. Um, And as I think about that, I think about several in our church who have heard that in the last year, year and a half, two years, and even in recent days. Um, These are never fun to hear. Uh, These type of announcements are never fun to hear. Well, in verse number 31 of Mark chapter number 8, Jesus for the first time delivers an announcement to his disciples that is hard for them to hear, and one uh, announcement that invoked a very human response from Peter. And uh, we're going to examine this little passage here this morning and consider the thought here when God's plan doesn't make sense. Uh, Let's dive in here to this this passage um, with all that being said. First, let's look this morning, number one, at the fact that Jesus revealed God's plan. Jesus revealed God's plan. In verse number 31, he says, it says here, he began to teach them. See, up until this time, Jesus had never announced the plan of God for him to be crucified and to rise again to his disciples. I mean, we know this. I mean, we look at this and go, oh, yeah, he did that. We know that. But, but again, put yourself in the disciples' sandals here And up until this point, Jesus had never announced what he was planning to do. They knew that uh, he was the Christ. They had just come to that conclusion uh, just a verse before. But but now Jesus is making it very clear and known what his intentions are and what's going to end up happening. That he is going to suffer and that he's going to be rejected and that he is going to be killed and that he's going to rise again. And this was shocking news for the disciples to hear. Uh, Jesus feels as though, though, it's time to make it known to his disciples, and so he reveals this information. 
And this was news that the disciples would really not ever really get used to hearing or enjoy hearing. I I think even of them in the upper room in John chapter 14 as he announces that he's going to be going away. I mean, he'd been preparing them for for many months, explaining what he was going to do. And, And as he reminds them in the upper room there just hours before his crucifixion that he's going to be going away, Uh, he recognizes that their hearts are troubled. And so he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. And he tries to comfort them. So the disciples really never got used to hearing it or ever kind of went, oh yeah, we already know that. But this was the first time they got the news regarding God's plan. Now, I want to share, just break this down, this verse here, and share what God's plan was for the Lord Jesus. And and we, as we look back at the cross and we see all of these things indeed come to pass, first, uh, he spoke of his suffering in verse number 31. He says, he says, begin to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Uh, I don't, raise your hand if you like suffering. No, really, raise your hand if you like suffering. Okay, no hands are up. And I don't think it's because anybody's arms are, everybody's arms are broken. I think it's because no one enjoys suffering. And yet, that's what Jesus said that the Son of Man must deal with. Uh, There have been men and women who have suffered greatly in the past. Even in the Bible, I I think of uh, men like Joseph in the book of Genesis and how he suffered a lot. Uh, with being mistreated by his brothers, being lied about by Potiphar's wife, by being left in prison and forgotten in prison. And, uh, and, and I think even of the Apostle Paul, who in his ministry dealt with tremendous trials and tribulations along the way. But, but still, no one ever suffered to the degree that the Lord Jesus suffered. How did he suffer? Well, he suffered in... Uh, many different ways. He suffered mentally. In the uh, Garden of Gethsemane, we find him praying in such agony that the Bible says he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. He was humiliated and mocked. He was rejected by the same people who a couple days before were praising him and now they were calling for his crucifixion. You know, a Palm Sunday, when everybody goes and grabs those palms and goes, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Oh, we're so glad you're here. Those same people would later on be the ones who would be yelling out, crucify him, crucify him. So he dealt, emo- or, uh, he dealt mentally or emotionally uh, with some uh, tremendous uh, difficulty. So for those of you who are suffering emotionally, mentally, well, guess what? The Lord knows what it's like. He suffered mentally. He also suffered physically, of course. Um, As he goes to the cross, Jesus does, he was scourged with a cat of nine tails. That was uh, not a real pleasant experience. Some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to buffet him, which means to hit him and say unto him, hey, prophecy, prophesy. The servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. Uh, Who just hit you? So he was dealing with physical uh, torture. 
Uh, not only that, but they put a crown of thorns on his head and, and used a reed to pound it into his sculpt, driving those thorns into his head. Then they made him carry his own cross piece up the hill to a place of his crucifixion. I want to take a moment, and I've done this in the past, but remind us what a medical doctor's description of what a crucifixion was. And to remind us of the suffering physically that Jesus endured for you and for me. Here's what the doctor said. At Golgotha, the beam is placed on the ground and Jesus is quickly thrown backwards with his shoulders against the wood. The soldier feels for the depression at the front of the wrist. And he drives a heavy, square, wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly, he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flexion and movement. The beam is then lifted in place at the top of the post, and the title reading, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, is nailed into place. The left foot is pressed backward against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down, A nail is driven through the arch of each. As he pushes himself upward to avoid the stretching torment, he places his full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, there is a searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones through the feet. As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. And with these cramps come the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but cannot be exhaled. And Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmatically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in the life-giving oxygen. And hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against that rough timber. Then another agony begins. A deep crushing pain deep in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. The markedly dehydrated tissues send their flood of stimuli to the brain, and Jesus gasps, I thirst. Do you remember him saying that on the cross? He can then feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues. And with one last surge of strength, Once again, he presses his torn feet against the nail, straightens his legs, takes a deeper breath, and utters his seventh and last cry, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And then he gives up the ghost. He suffered physically. And most of us immediately, when we think of Jesus and his suffering, we we think of his uh, physical suffering, but actually there's one that was perhaps even more intense than the physical uh, suffering he endured, and that no one would really ever truly understand. What was that? He suffered spiritually too. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, a a mind-blowing verse 
says this, For he, God the Father, hath made him, Jesus the Son, to be sin for us, who knew no sin. Why? That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. But think of what Jesus went through when he became sin for us. The pure, holy, the one who was sitting on the throne as Isaiah saw him high and lifted up and the, and, and, and the seraphims cried, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. That same one came down to this earth and became sin for you and for me. That's some spiritual suffering. When he was there on the cross at noon, at high noon, when the sun was at its peak and it's at its brightest, the sky grew dark there at the cross when Jesus died. Matthew records this in chapter 27, verse 45. He says, now from the sixth hour, uh, that's at noon, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So from noon until three o'clock, it was dark. I know here in Oklahoma, sometimes some storms come that really cause the sky to grow pretty dark. I don't know what it was exactly that caused this, but it happened there. And really, ultimately, it signified the fact that God the Father was turning his back on God the Son because the next verse says, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I don't understand all of the implications. I don't understand how it took place. I just know that there was some spiritual suffering that took place. And not only did he take and become our sin, he also took the payment for our sin and paid the price for us. Uh, that was some spiritual suffering. And, and, and I, would, I would say very dogmatically that that was the most intense type of suffering that he endured. So Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. And so for those of you who are experiencing suffer, suffering right now in your life, you are in good company. I want to encourage you to cast all your care upon him, for he careth for you. You don't have to carry your burden alone. He knows what it's like. So in this announcement, he spoke of his suffering, but then he secondly spoke of his sacrifice. Verse 31, again, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes, and then these three words, and be killed. I've already kind of given you an explanation of how he was killed, but he did indeed die for us. He suffered death. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life tasted death for you, for me, so that we could live with him. Romans 5 and verse number 6 says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He spoke of his sacrifice. Again, as we go through the rest of the book of Mark, that's going to be the focus from here on out. 
Uh, we talked about his service leading up to this. But here, he announces to his disciples, Son of Man's going to suffer. Son of Man's going to sacrifice, but, but praise the Lord, it doesn't end there, does it? If you looked a little ahead there in verse number 31 at the last few verse, words, you'll know that there is a good ending to this. Because he didn't just speak of his suffering and his sacrifice. Thirdly, he spoke also of his success. Look at verse 31. It says, um, he, he said he's going to be rejected and be killed. And then after three days, rise again. You see, while things looked bleak and bad, Christ's work was not completed. Oh, it was finished on the cross, yes, but because you see three days after being in that borrowed tomb, guess what happened? Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose. He arose. Hallelujah. Christ arose. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. Aren't you thankful for the resurrection of Christ? So as he tells them that he's going to suffer and be rejected and be killed, he throws in that last thought, by the way, I'm going to rise again. So he spoke of the day when he would be successful in his bout with death, hell, and the grave, that he would be triumphant and victorious over something else or something that no one else could. And what he was saying here is for Jesus, the path to glory would lead first to the cross and then the grave. But there would be glory to come. There would be victory in the end. And so Jesus reveals God's plan to his disciples for the very first time in verse 31. And can you imagine being one of the disciples listening to this, hearing this shocking news? Again, we're, we, we read it as Christians and we're like, oh yeah, of course he did that. Well, this is the first time he announced it. And put yourselves in their, 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 their place and, and, and hear that announcement for the first time going, what? No. Hey, you, we're not going to allow it. No. And so that leads us to number two here. The fact that Peter rebuked the Savior. Verse 32. And he spake that saying openly, but Peter took him and began to rebuke him. So, Seth, would you mind coming up here, helping me? I didn't tell you I was going to do this, but I'm telling you now. Okay. Seth is going to represent the Lord Jesus. Okay. You're going to have to really use your imagination on this one. Okay. <laughs> okay. And I'm going to represent Peter. So, Jesus just gets, and I'm with my other disciples there, and uh, you, he, he's just shared this shocking news. Well, the Bible says... Peter took him and began to rebuke him. He's like, Jesus, you need to come with me for a second. This can't happen. No, we're not going to allow you to do this. You can't do this. And he begins to rebuke the Lord. Okay, thank you. You may be seated. I may need you in a minute. Again. Because there's another verse. See, remember when... Last Sunday, when we talked about how Jesus giving the disciples a test, and there were two questions on the test. The first one was pretty easy, but the second one was the most important one. Well, remember that it was, it was Peter who was the head of the class 
the one who got the A-plus on the test, the one who got the gold star for the day by saying, Thou art the Christ. But that proved to be a fleeting, shining moment for Peter because just a couple verses later, we find Peter rebuking the Lord. Peter feels like it's okay to take the Lord of glory aside, God in human flesh, the Creator, and correct Him. The audacity he had to rebuke the Lord. Now, Matthew records a little bit more detail on this rebuke. Now, just a little background here. Remember, Mark got most of his material from Peter. Mark was not an eyewitness to all of this. Peter was, of course, and uh, he shared with Mark the details that Mark used to record the book of Mark. So I imagine when Peter shared this story, he's like, you probably need to include this, but let's not go into some serious detail here. <laughs> okay, We don't need to get all the juicy details. Let's just kind of blow past this, okay? Well, Matthew uh, took this and he's like, well, I was there. I know what Peter said. And so let me tell you what Peter said. <laughs> so um, Matthew doesn't have any of that uh, uh, emotional attachment to Peter as much as Mark did. So Mark or Matthew records more of the details of what Peter said in this moment. He said, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Now it is interesting, the, word, the, the Bible here uses the word rebuke. What does that word mean? The word rebuke means to admonish by impl implication uh, to forbid or straightly charge. So Peter felt comfortable enough to admonish the Lord, to forbid the Lord, to charge the Lord to not do something. Now, his attention, I'm sure, was good. I think his heart was in the right place, so to speak. Um, not wanting his Lord, the Christ, to suffer, to be rejected, to be killed. Certainly that's understandable, but, but still, to rebuke the Lord Jesus Christ, that's dangerous territory, which he will soon learn how dangerous of territory it is. Now, wait a minute. Before we become too critical of Peter here, how many times do we do this in our own lives when God's plan doesn't seem to make sense to us. See, for Peter, as Jesus reveals God's plan, it didn't make sense, does not compute. No, this can't happen. It's not right. It's not fair. No. How many times do we, or at least are we tempted to rebuke the Lord like Peter does, did in our own life? You see, all is well so long as the blessings keep coming and the miracles keep coming and everything works out just the way we want it to. All is well. Everything's great as long as we agree with all that he is doing. But the moment that that changes, then we're tempted to be like Peter and, and, and take the Lord aside and say, um, not so, Lord. Forbid it. No. Can't we just get back to the positive parts of the Christian life? Can't everything just work together great? 
Can't everything just uh, work the way I want it to? See, most of us are good to follow God's plan as long as He makes us to lie down in green pastures and leads us beside the still waters. But the moment He leads us into the valley of the shadow of death, we want to call a timeout and take the Lord aside and rebuke Him and say, uh, no, 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 this isn't, this isn't right. I, I don't think I need this suffering. This sacrifice you're asking to make, is that, is that really all that necessary? No. Uh, please, can't we just get back to the green pastures and the still waters? See, in, this, in, this, in these moments, it's almost like we know better than God does. Peter, it seems like he kind of knew better than God. He said, I, I hear what you're saying, but, uh, but I know better than you. And no, that, that can't happen. Survey says, eh. The deal is, we want all the success in life. We want pleasure without pain. We want the crown without the cross. But what Jesus was saying is, look, I have to go through the cross. I have to deal with the pain before we get the crown, before we get the glory. How many of you are a little warm in here? I think we're getting a little warm again. If we've got it on, thank you. I appreciate it. It gets warm up here, and that's so I'm wondering if it's warm out there too. Um, See, we need to realize that God's plan for our lives, just like God's plan for Christ, also sometimes includes suffering and sacrifice. I hate to break it to you, but that's the way the Christian life is. Um, we're actually promised that we're going to deal with some difficulties. In James chapter 1, uh, the way James starts his book is this. In verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Not if you fall into diverse temptations. Look, suffering is a part of life. Again, I know some in our church family have uh, heard some very difficult, heavy news in recent days. And I'm not saying that you are rebuking the Lord at all, but I know that that is a temptation for everybody who goes through times of suffering and sacrifice. And I want to encourage us to remember that God is able to cause success to come from suffering and sacrifice. You see, only God can take what happened to him before the cross, then at the cross, and cause great victory to come from it. God can cause great victory and great glory and glories to happen and come from the suffering and trials that you're going through. Think of the promise found in Romans 8 and verse 28. Paul said, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to His purpose. So we have this confidence in our lives that we know that whatever's going through, whatever I'm going through, God is able to turn that around for good. I'm sure that the disciples were totally distraught once Jesus was dead. I know they were. They were in complete despair and totally confused as, now what do we do? Our master's gone. He's dead, and that's it. That was a great three-and-a-half-year run, but now what? See, with as horrible as the cross was, as horrible as seeing Jesus suffer like he did, 
the moment of victory was so sweet. And you and I who go through difficult times, I know it's tough. I know it feels horrible at the moment, but there is coming a day of victory. It may not even be in this life. Those who are suffering physically and God doesn't choose to heal them, they're saying, well, where's the victory in that? Oh, well, you'll get the ultimate healing, number one. And God has a way of working things out in, in a way that blows our mind. I think about Joseph. I mentioned him a little earlier in the message and how he was mistreated and all those things. But you know, Joseph kept his eyes on the Lord and realized that God was using all of those things for a plan, for a purpose. And God caused great good to come from those times of suffering and sacrifice. And God can cause great good to come from your time of sacrifice and suffering as well. So when God's plan doesn't make sense in your life, instead of rebuking the Lord for what he's doing, let's trust him. Let's trust his goodness and his sovereignty, knowing that he is in full control and at the same time fulfilling his will in our life and his will in the world. I mentioned my mom a few at the beginning of the message. Well, most of you know that my mom is not alive now. She died when she was just 44 years old of cancer. She went through the treatment of that time and uh, her cancer went into remission for a couple years and then it came back. And when it came back, boy, did it come back. And within six months, she was in the presence of God. She died on New Year's Day, 1998. Uh, what, what success do I see from that? That was suffering that she endured and suffering that we as a family endured and sacrifice. Where's the success in that? Well, of course, my knowing my mom is in heaven is a special blessing. And knowing that I'll see her again, I'm looking forward to that day. I do want to see the Lord. And then the first person after that, can you show me where my mom is? I want to give her a hug. It's been a while. But here in this life, how has God used that? Well, I didn't realize it at the time, but God was going to make me one day a pastor. And God was going to put in our church people who are dealing with cancer. And I'm telling you, those who are going through that or have gone through that, I have seen the Lord use that in my life and in theirs. I don't have all the reasons why God allowed it, but I do know God had a plan and a purpose for it. And he has used it. And I look back and say, oh, okay, well, maybe that's one of the reasons why God allowed this to happen in my life. Okay, you've had different suffering. You've had different sacrifices that you've had to make in your life. Why did God allow that? Again, I don't know all the reasons. God doesn't owe us an explanation. But as you continue to be faithful to the Lord, you'll see how God has used those trials and tribulations to be a blessing to others. If you would, just very briefly, we'll be back here in Mark 8, but I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter number 1. I want to show you a verse. A two verses. The first one, extremely encouraging. The second one reveals a little bit of why God allows these things in our lives. 
Uh, verse number 3 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and I love this title of God, the God of all comfort. But then notice in verse number 4, it says this, Who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. See, God allows trials in our lives so that God could comfort us, so that when someone else in our life, a family a member, a friend, a someone here at church is going through a similar trial, we can say, hey, I've been there. Here's what God's taught me. I want to be here for you. I want to be a blessing to you. And I've seen that happen in our church with others who've gone through difficulties, who've, who, who've gone, gone to those who are going through a similar situation, and they go and say, I'm, I'm here for you. I've been there. Here's what God's done in my life. See, God is able to make good come from the difficulties that he allows in our lives. What good is it for, I mean, Jesus doesn't deserve to be to go through any suffering. Jesus doesn't deserve to die. I mean, he is the prince of life. And yet, he had to go through that. And then he caused great good to come from it. And God is able to do the same in our lives as well. And we'll look at number three here as we wrap this up. Number three, I want us to see that, because this, this, this little encounter isn't over. We're going to see how Jesus reprimanded the disciple. All right, verse 33. So verse 32 says, Peter took him and began to rebuke him, but when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. All right, so Seth, come on up here. So remember, Peter takes Seth aside, or not Seth. <laughs> Got to get back in, the, in character here. Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him saying, no, that's not happening. And uh, I think probably what it was was, was, like, was like this. And then he, he's like this, I think technically. And then the Bible says he turned around. And the rest of the disciples are over there. And Peter is behind here. And then he says to those disciples, get thee behind me, Satan. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Okay, you can be seated. So he turns his back on Peter and faces the disciples and shares this with them because he wants to convey the message that what I announce to you must come to pass. It absolutely had to come to pass. See, Peter's suggestion that Jesus could bypass the cross it kind of triggered the Lord Jesus. Okay, now he, Jesus wasn't really reactionary, but, but almost. Uh, we can see him react to this and see our humble, lowly Savior was not pleased with Peter's response. See, he was headed to the cross and nothing was going to stop him. He was totally committed and focused on finishing the work that his father gave him to do. And here in this passage, in this verse, it seems as though that Jesus was calling Peter Satan. Now, most Bible commentators agree that he wasn't just calling Peter bad names, okay? Um, 
but rather pointing out that the suggestion that Jesus bypassed the cross, that was satanic, that suggestion that he uh, avoid the cross. Because if you remember when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, Satan offered this option to him. And uh, if you want to turn back to Mark 4, I want to show you this real quickly. Just so that you can see that what Peter said, what Peter was trying to uh, say to Jesus that, hey, this isn't, you shouldn't go to the cross. Like, let's, let's avoid this. That that originally came from Satan. Matthew 4, 1. It says, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Okay, so the devil's the one tempting him here. In verse number 3, when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. And, and Jesus responds with, It is written, and says, No, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And then there's another temptation in verses 5 and 6. But then look, let's skip down to verse number 8 here, the third temptation that, that Satan offers Jesus. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. So Satan said, Hey, I know you're supposed to go to the cross and suffer and be rejected. And deal with all that. Why don't you just want to hit the, don't you just feel like pushing the microwave button and say, ding, and it's there, and you don't have to go through all that nonsense? Why don't you just fall down and worship me right now, Jesus, and then you'll have all that glory? Well, Jesus responded in verse number 10, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. But he said to him, get thee hence. And now, back in Mark chapter 8, if you want to turn back there, he says to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, because the suggestion that Jesus do anything but go to the cross and deal with the suffering, any other option is a satanic option. And so, uh, no cross, no crown, no sacrifice, no glory. So, uh, Jesus had to put... Peter in his place, um, there wasn't any further consequences other than Peter realizing that what he said was satanic, and uh, that was probably punishment enough, one commentator pointed out, and I would say, yes, I would be, I would be put in my place at that point. So Jesus reprimanded the disciple, which shows us how serious he is about going to the cross and fulfilling his mission. Horatio Spafford was a successful lawyer and a businessman in Chicago with a, a lovely family, a wife, her name was Anna, and five children. However, they were not strangers to tears and tragedy. You see, their young son died with pneumonia in 1871, and in that same year, much of their business was lost in the great Chicago fire. Yet God in his mercy and kindness allowed the business to flourish once more. Well, on November 21st, 1873, the French ocean liner Bill de Harver uh, was crossing the Atlantic from the United States to Europe with 313 passengers on board. And among the passengers were Mrs. Spafford and their four daughters, leaving Mr. Spafford and 
uh, Mr. Spafford uh, there in uh, uh, where they were. And although Mr. Spafford had planned to go with his family, he found it necessary to stay in Chicago to help solve an unexpected business problem. So he told his wife he would join her and their children in Europe a few days later. His plan was to take another ship. Well, about four days into the crossing of the Atlantic, the Ville de Harbor collided with a powerful iron-hulled Scottish ship, the Loch Urn. And suddenly all those on board were in grave danger. Anna hurriedly brought her four children to the deck, and she knelt there with Annie, Margaret Lee, Bessie, and Tanetta, and prayed that God would spare them if that could be his will, or make them willing to endure whatever awaited them. Well, sadly, within approximately 12 minutes, the Ville de Harbor slipped beneath the dark waters of the Atlantic, carrying with it 226 of the passengers, including the four Spafford children. A sailor rowing a small boat over the spot where the ship went down spotted a woman floating on a piece of the wreckage. It was Anna still alive. He pulled her into the boat, and they were picked up by another large vessel, vessel which nine days later landed them in Cardiff, Wales. From them, she wired her husband a message which began, Saved alone, what shall I do? Well, Mr. Spafford later framed the telegram and placed it in his office. Another, ship, uh, another of the ship's survivors, Pastor Weiss, later recalled Anna saying, God gave me four daughters, and now they have been taken from me. Someday, I will understand why. Mr. Spafford booked a passage on the next available ship and left to join his grieving wife. With the ship about four days out, the captain called Spafford to his cabin and told him uh, they were currently over the place where his children went down. And according to Bertha Spafford Vester, a daughter born after the tragedy, that is when Horatio Spafford wrote the lyrics to It Is Well With My Soul. And the first stanza of that song goes, When peace like a river attendeth my way, but when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. And this morning as we conclude this message, I think it would do us well to sing that song together as we conclude this service. But Randy and musicians, if you could go ahead and get in your place. I think we'll end this message by singing a couple verses of It Is Well With My Soul. When God's plan doesn't make sense, it can still be well in our soul. Let's sing this song together this morning.